we cannot have climate-ready infrastructure unless we have equitable infrastructure. Most of the infrastructure in the developed world was built in the last century and wasn't really designed for these climatic extremes. The underground train line were getting water into the tunnel and uh, there were almost 500 people trapped in, in the underground. In most of the countries, the politicians come for a, for a very short period of time to the power and that creates a short-termism, and that creates a, a governance architecture failure in itself. We need to get out of this um, response mindset and get ahead of the problem and start investing. Climate change is here. We're seeing heat waves, wildfires, flooding, rising sea levels and devastating storms of increasing frequency and severity. And it's affecting our key infrastructure around the world, from heat-related power outages, buckling rail tracks and melting road surfaces, to coastal cities and small island states becoming submerged, and floods and storms releasing sewage into freshwater systems. Our infrastructure is the backbone of the global economy. It connects people, enhances quality of life and promotes health and safety. But climate change is threatening it and we need to act now to ensure our infrastructure can cope with that changing climate. So the question we're asking today is how do we ensure our infrastructure continues to protect and serve us in the future as our climate becomes more extreme? Today, I'm joined by Savina Carluccio, Executive Director at the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure, Lorian Farrell, Global Director of Knowledge Transformation Resilient Cities Network, and Abhilash Panda, Deputy Chief of Partnerships at the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. Later in the programme, we'll also hear from Roop Singh from the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Centre, Dr. Ruth Bomfrey, Chief Executive at Lloyd's Register Foundation and Dr. Haibo Chen, who will talk about extreme flooding in China. So welcome to you all. Great to have you with us. Um, I want to start by asking each of you just to outline what the impact of that changing climate is having on our infrastructure. So Savina, can I just start with you? Can you just give us some examples, please? For me, a striking example of the impact that climate change is having is the recent floods in Pakistan. So following a very intense heat wave and a long monsoon, then there was a record um, amount of rain. And, and that meant that uh, one third of the country was underwater. It was like a triple whammy. It was like river breaking their banks, flash flooding, glacial lakes bursting. And that caused 33 million people to be displaced, killed more than the 1,200 people, and then in terms of impact of infrastructure, 5,000 kilometers of road, 240 bridges were destroyed, disruption to energy and telecoms, and 1.5 million houses were destroyed. So that really gives you the sheer scale of impact that climate change can have on, on, on our infrastructure. Um, Lorian, what do you think? Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. And I think Savina said it best and gave you the most recent and perfect example of the incredible impacts um, that infrastructure can have on people's lives. And I'll just take it to the other extreme. Um, we're not only seeing catastrophic events, everyday infrastructure needs are going to be exacerbated by changing climate. So for example, um, we're getting those short bursts of rain 
that are more intense and more frequent. And even though the storm sewers can typically manage that that flow of water, just having it becoming coming more frequency puts a draw on the pipes themselves and has them start to fall down and need more maintenance. And most of our pipe systems, at least here in North America, are getting to 100 years old. And so, you know, already they're, they're starting to need repair, but now you're starting to tax them more and more. And so changing climate is exacerbating and accelerating that. Thanks, Lorian. Uh, Savina, why is our infrastructure not able to cope with the changes in climate that we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I think uh, for me, mo- the key point is that most of the infrastructure in the developed world was built in the last century and wasn't really designed for these climatic extremes. Um, Laurie, and I, I want to introduce the concept of resilience now because it's a word that comes up quite a lot when we talk about climate crisis. Um, but what does resilience actually mean in this context? What does it mean to have climate resilient infrastructure? That is a fantastic question. Thank you, Dan. When I think about resilient, climate-ready infrastructure, it is about the services that that infrastructure provides. And so we, as engineers, we have to think about when our designs will fail. We, this is what we're taught in school. Right? We, we know that what we do is never going to be foolproof or fail-safe. We have factors of safety for a reason. Um, and so if a community is going to be resilient, though, we cannot have them relying solely on our ability to fortify a bridge structure to, against a seismic impact or to build a seawall higher against rising flood levels. We also need to think about what are the services that that infrastructure provides to the community. And so for an example of that would be if you had a bridge um, that was a critical piece of infrastructure for the food supply chain. Um, yes, we want to do everything that we can to make that bridge uh, as strong as it can be. But we also need to think about uh, redundancies and having other points of access for the community so that if that bridge does fail, that they are still able to eat, which is what this is all about. It's not about keeping a bridge up. It's about keeping people safe. Okay, now we're going to hear from Dr. Haibo Chen. Uh, We caught up with Dr. Chen earlier in the week to talk about the July 2021 floods in the Chinese province of Henan and the impact on the city of Zhengzhou, its people and its infrastructure. Let's hear from Dr. Haibo Chen. Zhengzhou city is located in the middle of China and it is a continental monsoon climate. So that means normally it's a dry, but in the spring, summer, it can rain a bit. But on the 20th of July, 2021, last year, the, the amount of rain on that day, almost matching the average yearly amount of rain, and caused the flooding of the city. And then it affected the infrastructures heavily. In the suburban areas, it caused the flooding of um, reservoirs and rivers and then causing heavy fatalities. So with a lot of water coming in very short time, uh, the, the drainage system couldn't cope with it. So basically most of the roads were flooded. And then we have a road tunnels crossing the, 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 the bridges, etc. And those road tunnels were completely submerged. Then you have the, the underground parking places or underground facilities like uh, emergency generator, for example. Many of those were flooded. The underground train line 
were, were getting water into the tunnel. The, the, there was no stop command, so the train kept running with, with water in the tunnel and eventually loss of electricity and stopped. And, and uh, there were almost 500 people trapped in, in the underground. Then we also have a road tunnel with hundreds of cars in it. That road tunnel completely flooded with a lot of cars trapped. The, the heavy rain and the flooding events eventually knocked down all these um, telecommunication stations. So basically the, the mobile phone signal quickly uh, went away. The, the lack of telecommunication that, that is further causing the, the, the difficulties to the rescue efforts. This kind of um, extreme rain happened this year in Seoul, and Seoul is in Korea, South Korea. It's a big city again, and uh, lots of infrastructure. And uh, last year there were also this uh, extreme rain and flooding events in, in Germany and possibly in USA as well. And these kind of things are happening around the globe. We must have some kind of platform to exchange and learning from each other. What went well in this city can be actually a, a real good lesson for other city or other region to, to pick up, vice versa. So it's urgent need actually for the global community or city management community to cross learning of, of those events. What went well and what went wrong and, and what are lessons we, we can take from those events and make it as a common knowledge available to people. Thank you to Dr. Haibo Chen for that. More recently, we've seen devastating floods in Pakistan, as Savina mentioned earlier. At one point, a third of the country was underwater, leading to huge loss of life and extensive infrastructural damage, including bridges and road networks destroyed. So let's turn to the solutions now. So Abilash, we know these sort of floods are going to continue and get worse. Uh, we can't stop the rain, of course, but, but what sort of thing can we put in place in terms of infrastructure to minimise damage and loss of life in the future? No, there, is, there are many, many ways of looking at this. There, there is one asset category, which is ageing, which is there and which has been built in the last 50, 60 years, we need to just, we need to retrofit it. That's option one. Option two then looks at, you know, if we cannot do that, because in certain cases, uh, developing developing economies don't have <clears throat> resources or cash sitting around to go ahead uh, out and start retrofitting everything, everything. Then we have to start prioritizing. We have to look at interdependencies between asset categories and start prioritizing where do we invest our resources uh, as, as, a, as a matter of fact. So we have to start factoring in the interdependencies between the assets, the service delivery, and we need to start stress testing them. Uh, we need to start stress testing the assets uh, across a country or across a region and find out the weak points. This is where the priority investment needs to go in and that's where we need to invest. And then comes the question of all the new investments that's going in. And in there, we need to make sure that there is a think resilience approach. Because all the investments that we are putting in now or in the last few years or in the next few years is going to decide whether we are creating new risk or we are addressing risk. Savina, we can have hard solutions such as levees, canals, water management systems, but they all kind of come with resilient residual risk and then, you know, the, the storm thresholds can 
can still be surpassed in, the, in this hard infrastructure can fail. So we need to also think about investing in soft solutions such as land management, land planning, and understanding how people interact with protection infrastructure. And also thinking about integrating nature into grey infrastructure to mitigate flood. Um, flooding, impact of flooding. So an interesting example can be the so-called sponge cities that use the natural areas as trees or lakes uh, within the urban areas that can help absorb the rain and prevent the flooding. So this has got multiple benefits and can strengthen the sustainable uh, drainage system, but can also improve the ecological environment and biodiversity. So, and, and cities around the world that have embraced this sponge cities approach are, for example, Auckland, Singapore, and New York to an extent. Um, and so I just wanted to mention this example because I think it's a, it's a quite good one. For, for mitigation. Laurie, in, in many circumstances, floods cause damage to telecommunication networks, so, so people can't contact each other, or quite crucially, the emergency services. So another problem is that when roads and rail networks are destroyed and flooding, the emergency services can't actually get through as well. So, so how can we learn from this and make sure that this is avoided in the future? So we need to get out of this um, response mindset and get ahead of the problem and start investing in the infrastructure, whether that be um, infrastructure that connects us or infrastructure that provides services or protects us. We need, to, we need to stop waiting for disasters to happen before we sit up and pay attention. We know disasters are going to happen. Um, and on a very rudimentary level, um, you know, all tech innovations aside, we need to be able to connect in the absence of infrastructure, of infrastructure and tech. So getting back to social cohesion, um, getting back to putting programs in place so you know your neighbor, um, so that you are aware that you your neighbor may need you. So part of it is education and mindset shift to be a little bit more um, self-dependent, but also uh, being able to go out and look after your neighbors as well is really important. Layer upon that the technical solutions, layer upon that the policy and investments that we need to be able to implement. So we have a full, wholesome um, approach to keeping people safe. Now we're going to hear from Roop Singh, a climate risk advisor at the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Centre in New York. Roop leads the Red Cross Red Crescent's work on heat risk and also hosts the brilliant Can't Take the Heat podcast. So we are supporting a city in Nepal called Nepalganj to develop a heat action plan. A heat action plan is essentially a roadmap for what should the government of Nepal in this particular municipality do when there is an imminent heat wave happening, but also how do they plan on sort of a, a yearly cycle for taking action on heat um, to prevent impacts to people. So extreme heat has many health impacts on different people, um, particularly vulnerable tend to be mothers, um, newborn babies, elderly people, people who are working outdoors in very hot conditions. And what we tend to see is people impacted by uh, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, but also heat can exacerbate existing conditions. It can exacerbate existing mental health conditions, but also um, heart disease or heart-related conditions, as well as lung-related conditions. 
there's a lot of things that people can do themselves. And so a lot of the work that we do is around education and behavioral change. So how do we ensure that people aren't going out during the hottest time of the day, they stay hydrated, they, they have a cool place to go when it is very hot, like a cooling center to go. A cooling center is essentially a place where people can go that is free of access to cool off during the day. Um, for example, in Vietnam, the Red Cross has been um, creating these cooling buses in which they drive around the city of Hanoi and they pick up especially people who are outdoor workers um, and they have nurses on board so that they can check for symptoms of heat exhaustion or heat stress um, and provide first aid. So we tend to find that green spaces um, are areas where temperatures tend to be cooler, especially in cities. And so one of the pieces of work that we've undertaken in Nepal is using satellite information to map which areas have more vegetation, where we would expect um, temperatures to be cooler. And then of course, in contrast, also understanding which areas tend to be hotspots within a city so that we can sort of target some of our interventions to those areas. What we tend to see is as cities grow, you have this influx of sort of peri-urban areas um, in which you have a lot of informal housing. And it tends to be that this informal housing um, is not very good at keeping the heat out. And so one of the things that we've been trying is how do we retrofit some of these existing homes? Uh, we've looked into adding sprinkler systems. We've looked it into different ways of shading um, so that less of the heat gets in and people are less affected. I think what's really needed is we need to ensure that there are enough green spaces that help to keep the city cool. We need to make sure the construction materials um, don't increase the heat island effect. Um, and oftentimes looking back at what the indigenous strategies were helps because people in a lot of these regions have dealt with heat for a very long time. And now as we're urbanizing, we're using more and more modern technologies that don't necessarily reflect the building materials that have historically been used that actually help to keep the heat out. So that's another thing that I hope to see more of in the future. Thanks to Roop Singh for that. Now, Roop touched on this, but Abalash, can you give us another example of how infrastructure can be used to protect us from heat? There are examples from Milan. You know, the UN, UNDRR has something called the Making Cities Resilient Program 2030. There are roughly 4,000 uh, cities currently involved in that. And Milan is one of them. And it's been selected as one of the resilience hub for their use of green infrastructure to combat high temperature. Uh, the city has adopted vertical garden and green urban areas as, uh, as two key in nature-based solution strategies. Um, there is, I mentioned India, but there is, there is this location in India called Ahmedabad. Um, they have implemented what's called as a heat action plan in 2010, uh, where they have set up an early warning system for the most vulnerable and some roughly 7,000 uh, odd low-income households. Um, they got their roofs painted white. It's, it's a simple measure to reflect sunlight, but it reduces temperature. Now, there are cities where there are now chief heat officers. You know, there, is, uh, there are multiple examples, but they're not, there's no one which cuts across all these cities. They're all adapting in various ways and, and mechanisms. 
and and you know uh, it's a challenging job and we need to uh, congratulate them for whatever they can do at this point of time Savina your your role includes mobilizing the engineering community to to be proactive and influence those policymakers my feeling as an engineer i feel like engineers know what to do but so how can we mobilize the engineering community how can we influence the policymakers yeah you're right i think engineers are on the case and then there's plenty of uh, solutions and then we've never been in a better place in terms of technology and uh, and, and this is even improving. Uh, but traditionally, engineers have been involved uh, in project or infrastructure development from the design stage where the, the scope is quite locked in already. So the engineers are called in to do the project right because they can use their deep, deep technical knowledge to then ensure that infrastructure is delivered and built and uh, properly. But engineers need to become more vocal and come to the table with policymakers and investors so that they can support the decision makers in asking the right questions and influence the choice and the scope of projects. So it's not just about the project doing the project right, but it's also to have a say in what are the right projects. So that's something that uh, the engineering community stands ready uh, to do more of uh, and organizations like mine, the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure, is really working on mobilizing this community globally. Lorian, you were nodding furiously there as well. <laughs> I take it you agree. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly, uh, wholeheartedly, because that is, the, that is the, the case, that we get called in when the, the, the project is defined and there's not a lot of room or time to adjust or put new insights into it. I think engineers are so brilliant. <laughs> we, we could do so much more. <laughs> and also, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I'm a, I'm a Canadian water resources engineer. And in Canada, when you become an engineer, you're given uh, an iron ring. And we all wear this iron ring to remind us of our duty of care to the public. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because there was a, the myth, the, 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 the lore goes that there was an iron bridge that failed um, and many people died, and we vowed we would never allow that to happen again. We have a duty of care. We have to design with integrity. What that has done, though, in our careers, um, for me, me it's, it's, I'm always thinking about my responsibilities to the public, but I'm also, but yeah. also very, I've, a lot of our engineering colleagues are very worried about um, liability. And so we often tend to, uh, those that are not as innovative or brave, will default to the standard, right? I am, I am going to be all right as long as I'm doing what everybody else is doing, because that's your line of mm. defense. Um, we need to have more space for innovation, by no means yeah. slacking down on that duty of care, because I'm still wearing my ring, even though I don't even live in Canada anymore. But um, <laughs> it's really important. I think we all walk with this, this feeling that we, have, we are doing really important work, um, and it has to be done to a certain level of care. But we also are not always given the license to be as innovative. And part of that is when do we get involved in the design process? And part of that is also um, having space for innovation. And we know that innovation comes yeah. with failure. So how do we do that in a safe way? Uh, that's a bigger, I'm not answering any questions here. I'm just raising some things I've been thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> but it is really important, isn't it? You know, if you're, if you're not pushing the boundary, you're not innovating. And in order to innovate, you do have to fail. And we really only have one shot to get it right. We don't have time to mess around. So that's the other thing. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked about some some truly incredible solutions, you know, all, all three of you, which highlight the best in human design and engineering. Um, Abilash, what, what do you think are the barriers to, to some of these great ideas actually being implemented? In most of the countries, the politicians come for a, for a very short period of time to the power, right? And that 
creates a short-termism, right? You know, I'm there for five years, either I create my own legacy to come back. You know, I'm not mincing words here because, you know, that's what happens in most of the cases, right? And that creates a, a governance architecture failure in itself. So in short, I think governance is, is, a, is a problem and that, you know, that needs, there needs to be a risk-informed governance or a governance that's working for for the vulnerable population. And at the same time, infrastructure it has to ingrain being socially engaged, which is currently not uh, not how it is. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Avalash. Um, okay, uh, next we have a clip from Dr. Ruth Bumfrey, Chief Executive at Lloyd's Register Foundation. Ruth spoke to us earlier about the Foundation's 2021 World Risk Poll, a global study of perceptions and experiences of risk to people's safety. So the Lloyd's Register Foundation World Risk Poll is a systematic global study of what people worry about and what harm they actually experience. We like to think that it gives a voice to the world. The reason we commissioned this poll is that there is very little or no official data in many places in the world on safety and risk. And so it constitutes a unique resource for defining the nature and scale of safety challenges across the world. Resilience is a very important property, and especially in the context of climate change. We also know that resilient infrastructure is very important to stopping long-term harm when there are extreme weather events or climate change events. There is an unequal global distribution in how resilient countries are. Better infrastructure and better economic security scores relatively highly on our World Risk Poll Resilience Index. Regions with high disaster experience low resilience and highlight areas of vulnerability that we really do need to urgently address. What's really interesting here is if we look at the data which tell us where people are experiencing harm and look at the data which tells us how resilient places are, it's where these two things overlap, where we can see that there is most vulnerability. One interesting thing that we found from the results is that it's not just about quality infrastructure that makes you resilient, sometimes a strong sense of community support can compensate for where there isn't such strong infrastructure. Community support is higher in low-income countries. And what we do know is that community support is an important factor in social cohesion and in resilience in a community. But in contrast, people in low-income countries typically lack access to things like the internet. People with internet access are more likely to say they feel able to protect themselves and their families in the event of a disaster, regardless of the country income level. So what we can see there is that access to the internet becomes a very important tool in resilience. Another really interesting feature that's coming through in our data is which countries are more prepared. Countries, especially in Southeast Asia, are more likely to say that their families and their households have got a plan in the event of an emergency. In addition, information that we're getting from the poll tells us who is most trusted by people in the event of a disaster. So local news is the most trusted source for many people, but in many countries, religious leaders can be a trusted source. Policymakers need to ensure that the interventions to improve resilience are equitable and inclusive, so nobody's left behind. And one way of doing this is by disseminating disaster information through the sources that are most trusted by these different communities. We also included some questions about discrimination, because we do know that people who are discriminated against are more vulnerable to certain harms. Discrimination against certain groups is also a factor in undermining their resilience. The data that we've got from this World Risk Poll is a unique resource. The intelligence that we've gathered 
can and should be used by governments and regulators and businesses and by international bodies and NGOs who are looking to invest and to target and inform policies and interventions that make people safer. The Foundation is encouraging other researchers to use the data for secondary analysis and to create deeper insights. And we're keen for other organisations to partner with us to create programmes and initiatives to help tackle the issues that are raised. Thank you to Dr Ruth Bomfrey for that. Um, now, Ruth talked about discrimination against certain groups being a factor in undermining their resilience. And I think we, need, we clearly need to make sure that interventions to improve resilience are equitable and inclusive and that they protect everyone, especially the most vulnerable people who are often those living in high-risk areas. Ruth mentioned communication of disaster information as being one way to do that. So Savina, what other ways can we make sure that the most vulnerable people are prioritised when we're thinking about our infrastructure? Yeah, I think this, those who are poor and vulnerable have not historically had a voice in decision-making processes. So I think we need to be a lot more inclusive and, and in kind of uh, in the engagement in the decision-making processes and also in the development of infrastructure. And I think open data initiatives could help, you know, to then encourage, uh, create those kind of incentive and mechanism for the collection of, collection of data from marginalised and vulnerable populations that can be then fed back into the infrastructure development process. The other thing is um, we, we need to be um, increasingly be aware of adopting a people-centered approach to the development of infrastructure and implementation of infrastructure. Uh, and that could include also uh, gender and disability, sort of uh, consideration of gender and disability uh, in the design of the infrastructure itself. Thanks, Savina. Uh, Lorian. We cannot have climate-ready infrastructure unless we have equitable infrastructure. Uh, there are areas in our communities and our cities where the most vulnerable people are also the most poor and disadvantaged people, the most underserved people. And that is a direct result of planning choices that we have made in our institutions. So who gets the best parks? Who gets the most investment in cooling centers? Who gets the um, shelters along the bus routes? You know, these are, these are, are problems that are exacerbated because of inequitable decision-making. So uh, for me, uh, and what we talk about at Resilient Cities Network, um, with a tool that we're developing is called the Resilient Infrastructure Diversity and Equity Scorecard is about how do we make better decisions in designing our infrastructure that are also embedding equity in the decision-making process every step along the way. Okay, we're almost at the end of our discussion, but I've got one final question for you all, okay? So, um, Abilash, I'm going to come to you first. What is your vision for the future? We've talked about so many great things um, on this, so, but what's your vision for it? What do you hope we'll achieve in terms of climate-resilient infrastructure by, let's say, 2030? Well, for, for us, I mean, for us, the vision is pretty straightforward. Uh, we would like to see a world where disasters no longer threaten the well-being of people and the future of the planet. Hazards are there. We need to address the vulnerability uh, uh, around it and build the capacity uh, towards addressing some of those hazards. Uh, Savina, what's your vision for the future? What do you want to see by 2030? Well, I, I'm a climate optimist uh, and I think we, we need to use our imagination to, vis to visualise the positive future that we want to create to be able to communicate it to others and, and inspire others to take action. So in my 2030 world, people will have understood that this is each and every one of us's responsibility to tackle climate change. And there is no other way 
but doing this together. So um, I'd like to quote Sir David Attenborough, if you don't mind, from the COP26 uh, address, because that was really inspiring. He said that we are the greatest problem solvers that will have ever existed on Earth. And if we are working apart, we are a force powerful enough to destabilize our planet. But surely if we work together, we are powerful enough to save it. So I think that's that's really says it all for me. Thanks, Serena. Uh, Lorian, what does your 2030 world look like? I think that we need to march forward to a world that is resilient. Resilience is the ability to survive, to adapt and to thrive no matter what we face. Everyone deserves to live a beautiful life. Um, no one deserves to be left behind. I would say also just to double down that we, cities, cities and communities, governments cannot do this work alone. So we need private sector at the table. Um, we need philanthropy at the table. We need the public at the table working together to solve these really, um, these really pressing challenges. Mm, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Lorian. Um, And that's it for today. What an absolutely fascinating discussion. Truly, it's been brilliant. Thank you uh, to all of you, to Savinia Carluccio, to Lauren Farrell, to Abhilash Panda. And we heard from Dr. Ruth Bumfrey, Roop Singh and Dr. Haibo Chen. And of course, thank you to you for listening. Join us again for the next episode of the Global Safety Podcast with Lloyd's Register Foundation. And remember to follow or subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. Bye.